0: We pray for us as they go. Uh, Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you have spoken. God, we pray now that you would ready us to hear it and to live in light of it. We believe that you're good, that you're for us. And Lord, even difficult words are meant to heal us and orient us towards the Son of Man. In whose name we pray. Amen. So uh, this morning, we'll, as you see here, preach out of Luke chapter 6. And, uh, the next couple of weeks we'll take a break from the book of Luke. I'm seeing all kinds of people that are former members of our church that I did not know were I going to be here. So it is throwing me off. <laughs> Hello, Lynn. Uh, so, uh, yeah, anyway, forgive me. Yeah. Sometimes I'm able to kind of hide that and I say afterwards, but sometimes I just, this is like the third person I've seen today. I didn't know it was going to be here. So anyway, uh, so let me get back into it. So this week, uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Luke uh, as we've been doing for since September. We'll take a couple weeks break, and uh, we'll jump back in on January fifth. And so the next week, next week I'll I'll preach something probably from the Old Testament to consider uh, the anticipation of Christ. The week after that, uh, Chris Ambridge will come and preach from First Peter, or as he likes to call it, One Peter, uh, chapter two. I think he'll be preaching from, uh, and then we'll get into uh, uh, back into Luke in the new year. And so this morning, we're looking down here at Luke chapter 6. And up until now, as we've been studying this gospel, up until now, what we've seen uh, is in the first couple chapters, we saw how Luke was rehearsing for us this notion that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. We can recall that. That's what was going on in those first couple chapters. And then we saw in chapter 3, that was the story of John the baptizer that comes and he's baptizing for a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, readying people for the ministry of Christ. And then in chapters 4, 5 and what we've seen so far in chapter 6, we've been learning a lot about who Jesus is, what he's like and why he's come. We've learned that He's the Christ, that He's the Son of Man, that He is the Lord, that He is the Bridegroom. Last week we thought about the fact that He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And we've seen what He's like. We've seen that He's gracious and compassionate and forgiving and all these things. And we've learned that why He's come, that was chapter 5, verse 32, I think it was, where He says that He has come to call sinners to repentance. And so we've been seeing that He's teaching a lot. But up till now, Luke has not really told us, other than what He said in that synagogue that one time, He's not really told us the content of Jesus' preaching. Well, all that changes today. So this kind of begins a turn in Luke's gospel. Uh, From here on out, we're going to get a lot of content of Jesus' preaching. And let me go ahead and warn you in advance of this. This, Jesus' teaching is hard. Uh, It's difficult. It confronts us. There's a reason why Jesus' ministry culminated in crucifixion. And so just be prepared for these kinds of things. His teaching was good. It was sweet. But it opposes our inclinations to fit into this world. So just be prepared for that. Big idea this morning, two ways to live, short-term pain, long-term pleasure, or short-term pleasure, long-term pain. That's you, If you get lost, that's where we're at. Two ways to live, two options that we all, everybody on planet Earth has to choose from. Follow Jesus and find short-term pain, but long-term pleasure. Follow the false prophets and find uh, short-term pleasure, but long-term pain. So when we look down there in chapter 6, Verse 12, we thought about this verse last week a little bit. We saw that Jesus goes out. He went out to the mountain and prayed all night and continued in prayer to God. And so Jesus is going out to uh, pray in advance of these, uh, what I might call the new and better 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Again, we thought about this last night. But Jesus is going out and having this all night prayer vigil in advance of this major decision. So major decision, the decision he makes to choose these 12 men are literally going to change the whole world. So he's praying all night, time and time again. We've been running into Jesus uh, healing and teaching, but he's spending a lot of time praying. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, if Jesus needed to pray this much, how much more do we need to pray? Uh, the longer that I pastor, the more that I just live as a Christian, the more that I see how often I come to the end of myself and that I just can't change things like I thought I could when I was 31. Um, I see my need for prayer. I hope that you do as you grow in your love for Christ. Prayer, right, is the manifestation of living by faith in Christ. That's one way we manifest the fact that we live by faith in Christ is through our prayer lives. We claim that Jesus is king. We claim that he is authority, not Us, that he's the one that brings change and our prayer lives are the manifestation of that confession. And so likewise, if we're not praying. Then we're not living by faith. Just as you heard Isabel pray a moment ago, we are living in the sufficiency of our own flesh and our own wisdom and our own desires and our own efforts instead of living to trust Jesus and see him bring, bring out, bring about good things. And so, beloved, how is your prayer life? How's your private prayer life? I don't ask that question to condemn you. I truly don't. It's just a good time to just bring some evaluation to how your prayer life is going. How is your private prayer life? Samuel Chadwick, British pastor, tells the story of when he was a small boy. He was sent to, uh, to, to, to kind of administer a me- an errand at his neighbor's house, Mrs. Davenport. He said, It was nine o'clock in the morning and I knocked On the door and I stepped inside and on the hearth, he said, kneeling at a chair on which there was an open Bible was Mrs. Davenport praying. He said she was unaware of my presence. He said, I stood in silent awe and looked at her for a moment and then quietly stepped out and closed the door. Chadwick says it's been more than 60 years since that morning. But from then till now, I have known that Mrs. Davenport was a saint of God. Because she prayed. It is God's, he says, God's infallible sign. So again, beloved, if Jesus is praying this often, especially in advance of big decisions, how much more do we need to pray every single day? And even at times, extendedly pray. We are pressed in to be self-sufficient and autonomous uh, in our society. And one of the ways we rebel against that teaching is by praying. That's our rebellion. Prayer, say that we are not self-sufficient, that we need God. And so as the year draws to a close, might I encourage us to renew our commitment to pray, both individually and as a church. We, We may not, at Restoration Church, we may not do this good or that great, but may we be a church that's known for praying. Praying privately and corporately may we be the kind of people that express our need for god by our prayer lives may that be said of us may we pray in secret because god knows our needs and we go to him to fulfill them just as the son did as we see here One more story from Chadwick before we move on from this notion of prayer that we see Jesus doing. He says, many years ago, he says, a sweet little girl stole into my bedroom in the house where I was staying. She prattled blithely over all the wonders of her childlike world. But when I asked her if her father was up, she looked radiantly and reverently into my eyes and said, Oh, my daddy always talks with God in the drawing room before breakfast. (laughs) May we all have such reputations. Because we all depend so desperately upon the Lord of the Sabbath to quiet us and then quicken us for the work that's in front of us. Well, here we see from verse 12 and chapter six, Jesus comes out from the all night prayer vigil, strengthened, empowered, emboldened, confident. He calls all his disciples. He then chooses uh, from those disciples. He calls all these people out. He chooses from the group of people, 12 people, 12 men, and he names them apostles. Apostles means sent ones. And so these guys are chosen, we see, for a task, to be sent for that task. Just like all of us are in Christ, are chosen for a task. Jesus calls us, he chooses us, he calls us and he appoints us, little a, apostles. He chooses us in order to be sent out. But these again are the capital A, apostles, the twelve. These are the ones of whom the kingdom of God will be built. The new and the better covenant with the new and better Israel built on the backs of these guys right here. These 12 men. We find that there's two sets of brothers. We've thought about them already a little bit. Simon and Andrew, as well as James and John. We have Philip, Bartholomew. Some believe him to be my namesake, Nathaniel. The guy that's known for saying, does anything good come from Nazareth? Just love that Jesus chose him. We have the gospel writer, Matthew. We have poor Thomas that's known for his doubting. We always forget the fact that they all doubted. But nevertheless, he's the one that gets to be remembered as doubting. James, the son of Alphaeus, another Simon, and Judas Iscariot, who it says, who became a traitor. Now, that little note there on Judas tells us the the perspective on which Luke is writing. So, in other words, it's easy to read the Bible and these gospels, these narratives, and thinks that these guys are sort of like embedded journalists, just sort of documenting what happened this day and then that day. That's not what's happening. Because Luke knows what Judas is going to be, who he's going to be, we see that he's writing from a forward perspective that's going back and he's carefully putting together this narrative in order to tell you the truth, to pass along an idea. Now, that's important to note, that logic, how he's writing, because that's going to come back to us when we get to the blessing and the woes in just a minute. But here we have, we got the 12. And I want you to notice, when you look at that 12, notice who's not there when you look at these guys. Notice there's no kings. No great magistrates. We don't even seem to find any priests or religious professionals like me. None of them seem to be there. They're simple, ordinary people. All the kinds of people that we uh, we wouldn't really expect Jesus to build the kingdom of God upon. We've got four fishermen. We've got a tax collector. We have a zealot, Simon the Zealot. Uh, zealots were a kind of uh, aggressive political party in favor of Jewish nationalism. Uh, We don't know much about the lives of the other six, but regardless, there they are 12 prayerfully and therefore carefully chosen Jewish men, a motley crew. But Jesus motley crew that he chose. I love this line in John 13, where it says at the end of Jesus's life, it says of these 12 guys that he loved them to the end. Loved every one of them to the end. He would spend the better part of three years with these guys. Most every day he's with these guys, teaching them, apprenticing them in the way of the kingdom, just pouring into these guys uh, and these simple, ordinary men. Uh, and by them, the world would be changed. It's pretty amazing. Another British pastor from the 19th century, J.C. Ryle, says of them, of those disciples, he says, he furnishes us with unanswerable proof of the divine origin of Christianity, a religion which turned the world upside down, with such men as its first preachers. A few lowly Galileans shook the world and changed the face of the Roman Empire. Some fishermen and tax collectors and zealots. So important are these men that Jesus chooses. We read about them at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 21. In the New Jerusalem, we learn in Revelation 21, verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So in the new heavens and new earth, there's going to be 12 stones, foundation stones built on these guys. Their names are there. That 12th presumably is not uh, Judas Iscariot. That's either Matthias, maybe even Paul. We can have that conversation after church if you want to know my thoughts about that. But regardless, save John on the island of Patmos. Tradition tells us that all of these men that Jesus chose, every single one of them, save John, die terrible deaths. Because they love Jesus they were changed by the glory of Christ. They all will go on to die terrible deaths because of the gospel. And so friend, you should know that if you love Jesus, if you love Jesus, you love Jesus because those 12 men told some others who told some others who told some others who eventually told you started with them. These 12 guys, men that are full of flaws, you will see they're full of flaws But I can't help but think that's why Jesus chose them. He chooses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. And that's exactly what we'll see in this blessing and woes here in just a minute. But everything's in place now. Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem as it was prophesied, the city of David. Uh, He was the son of David. He was the son of Abraham. All that's happened just as the Bible said it would. Jesus went through those kind of baptismal waters. He went through the baptismal waters. It's reference, I would say, to the Red Sea, just as the Israelites went to the Red Sea. Uh, We saw that Jesus went into the wilderness and was tempted, but unlike Israel, he came out faithful. And we see Jesus coming into the land, preaching and teaching just as Israel was going to the land to preach and teach. And now, just as Israel went in and established the 12 tribes, now Jesus has established the 12 tribes, the 12 disciples. Everything's in place now. Everything's in place. Luke is intentionally mirroring the first six books of the Bible to show that he's the better Israel. So look down there, verse 17 and 19. We see that Jesus comes down with them. Presumably he was up on a mountain. He comes down with them. Them would be the 12. And he stood on a level place. I know that some of you have been asking this question, so let's go ahead and answer it right out of the gate. This would indicate that what's about to come, this little sermon, is not the Sermon on the Mount. That we many of us are more familiar with, uh, theologians call this the Sermon on the Plain. It's on a level place. Now there are some scholars that believe that this plain that's referenced there, this flat ground, is a flat ground up on a mountain. So they're saying that they are the same. Um, they are the same sermon. However, uh, my take on that is, I think the uh, my take on that is, is that these are two separate sermons that are being preached. A different sermon from the sermon in Matthew chapter five to seven. The Sermon on the Mount. And so you'll notice that the two sermons are very familiar, very familiar, even the same in some places, but they're slightly different in other places. And that's due to two reasons. First off, the first reason why they're slightly different is because Jesus was an itinerant preacher and itinerant preachers will often preach the same sermons in different locations and emphasize different things based off the context they're in. I've done this myself, you know. It's made it difficult with the world of podcasts and the internet, but we have to preach new sermons all the time. But I've preached new sermons, same sermons in different places, but knowing the context, I've emphasized slightly different things. But the second reason, Luke also has a similar goal to Matthew, of course, in presenting Jesus as the Christ. But you'll notice, we're going to think about this a lot in a second, Luke is choosing to emphasize Christ building the kingdom upon the poor, upon the weak, upon the forgotten. And so regardless, that explains the differences between the Sermon on the Mount and what we're about to consider the Sermon on the Plain. They're similar but distinct, separate sermons. And so we see as he's come down, he's got his 12 disciples. The great crowds are still following Jesus at this time. We, we have a crowd of disciples. Disciples, again, means learner or follower. And we have a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And we learn that they've come to what? To hear Jesus. Others came to be healed by Jesus. Uh, And that includes people that have diseases and people who have unclean spirits within them. We see the crowd is seeking to touch Jesus and power would come out of him and all who sought to be healed were healed, it says. And then Luke moves into Jesus' sermon. By the way, those healings are meant to picture the kingdom. That's why they're there. Show you what the kingdom like it's healing. It's bringing restoration. But then Luke moves into the sermon. And I think it's helpful to note while Jesus, while Paul, Luke actually wants us to see that Jesus is healing. Notice where he spends most of his time. He does acknowledge that he's healing, but he spends most of his time from verse 20 down to verse 49, expressing his teaching ministry. All right. So we can be sure that Jesus said more than what's written here. The sermon was longer than this. You guys are thinking, Nathan, your sermons are 45, 50 minutes long. Jesus was only like, you know, whatever, five minutes. No, it was longer than that. It was longer than that. He's distilling it. Luke is distilling the sermon to serve the purposes for which the Lord intended. And so as we dive into the sermon, remember that big idea that we talked about at the beginning. Two ways of living. Short-term pain, long-term pleasure. That's following Christ. Short-term pleasure, long-term pain, following false teachers. Uh, and notice in the first set, the blessings, look in verse 20 to 23, that reflects the short-term pain, long-term pleasure. That's the blessed life. And then verses 24 to 26, that reflects the short-term pleasure, long-term pain, following false teeter, the woes. And then you'll notice that Jesus uses uh the two patterns to kind of play off each other. Did y'all catch that when it was read? So in verse 20, you have the poor, that's the blessed. And then slide over to verse twenty-four in the woe list. You have the rich. You got the poor working against the rich. Verse twenty-one. You have the hungry, and the woe list. You have the full. Verse twenty-two. You have the weeping. Verse twenty-five. You have the laughing. Verse twenty-two. You have the rejection. Verse twenty-six. You have acceptance. So they're kind of playing off of each other. Now that word, bless, or blessing, or blessedness, that could be translated good, or happy, or even life to those that are poor. Hungry, weeping, and persecuted on account of the Son of Man. How many wants to sign up for that list? None of us. Look over at the other set of verses. Woe or cursed are those that are rich, full, laughing, and well-spoken other of by others. How many in the room wants to be in that list? Let's just be honest, guys. Come on, let's just be honest. We don't want that first list. We want the second list. I, I mean, I do. I, 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 want, I don't want to be poor. I want to be rich. I want to laugh. I, want to, I don't want to weep. I don't want to be personal. I want, I want you guys to like me. I want you guys to come up. Nathan, you're the greatest preacher I've ever met in my entire life. You know? Right? We all, if we're just being honest. That's what we want. And Jesus is saying that, Woe to those. So, so the instinct, I think, the instinct, right, is to kind of create this kind of third way. Okay, well, well, there's got to be some third way in between these two. That we can kind of have both. That's our instinct. Try to make these commands, these blessings, these curses, try to make them more manageable. Because the reality is, friends, we live in Ward 3 of Washington, D.C. Most of us in this room are rich. Now, some of you college students are going, I'm not rich. Trust me, you're rich, right? we got the walkers here. Just go talk to them about life in Uganda. You're rich. yeah. So just be careful of our instinct. Our instinct is to try to to get rid of this stuff. Be aware of that. By the way, be aware of that all the time and question it. We have to submit to this knowing it's good. And so this attempt to kind of spiritualize these verses, not absolutize these verses, I've got good news and I've got bad news for us as it relates to that. Here's the good news. The good news is, is I do believe there's room to spiritualize and not absolutize these verses. That's the good news. The bad news, or might I say, as Jesus would say, the better news is that you can't shake clear from the clear meaning of these verses. In other words, it's a little bit of both. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at verse 23. Jesus says there, that the persecuted shall leap for joy for their reward is great. And in verse 25, there is a woe to those that laugh. Now how is it possible to be leaping for joy and not laugh? That's not possible, right? So that gives us a hint that there may be something more going on here than may first appear. Look back up to verse 21. Blessed are the weeping. But then you'll notice later in verse 25 in the woes, there's weeping. So that shows that weeping in and of itself is not the thing that we're after. There's got to be something more, again, going on here. And then on the other side, we know of people that are wealthy. We know that people that are rich from the Bible that are blessed, right? Think about David. We think about Job. We think about Joseph of Arimathea later in this story. They were rich people that were blessed. Or even closer. Take a look down at chapter 7. Right after the conclusion of this sermon. Look at the first story that's told. After the sermon on the plain. We learn there about a centurion. Who has servants. Folks that's a wealthy rich man. No doubt about it. If he's having servants. And yet you'll see that the faith. This guy has Jesus it says marvels at. And so there's room for some spiritualization. And not absolutizing these passages. But having said that. Don't be quick to do so. Now, looking back earlier in Luke's gospel, remember Mary's song? Do Y'all remember that? It's Christmas time. Let's go over there. Go over. Luke 1. Take a look at that one. This is now, I'm kind of moving in the sermon here. I'm showing you can't shake clear from the clear meaning. There is some spiritualization, but there's also some clear meaning. of the natural reading of poverty and these kinds of things. Look at chapter one. This is Mary's song. She's, this is her responding her and Elizabeth. They get together. They're pumped, right? John is, is, is turning over. He's in, in the womb. Mary's responding to what the Lord is doing through her. And look at Well, look at what she says in verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Why? For, or because he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me what? Say it out loud. Blessed. There you go. There's the same word that Jesus is using in the Sermon on the Plain. For because, so she's, because of her humble estate, she's blessed. She's being used. So Mary sees blessing coming to her because of her humble estate and her trust in the Lord. We might say because she's being poor and hungry, blessing is coming to her. And then look what she says. Slide down to verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. In other words, this whole song that Mary's singing is really just a recapitulation of the Sermon on the Plain. One might say that Mary was preaching the Sermon on the Plain before Jesus was. And then let me show you two other examples. I could give you so many more. Y'all remember like when Jesus uh, preached in the sermons, the synagogue, he reads Isaiah 61. Bless, I bring good news to the who? The poor. But let me show you a couple more. I'm going to give you two. I could give you more. I'm going to give you two more. Uh, Flip over to Luke 8. Go forward to Luke 8. All right. In here in Luke 8, you're going to have here, look down at verse 4. This is the parable of the sower. Many of you that are familiar with the teaching of the Bible this is the different soils and the seed falls on different soils. Jesus explains the, the different kind of reactions to the preaching of the gospel. And look at verse 14. His, this is Jesus's explanation of the of the seed that falls on the on the uh, uh, on the weed. Jesus says, and as for those uh, and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked What by what? By the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. So we have the same word as we get in the woes, riches being used as an example of how they can choke the fruit of the gospel out of somebody's life. Then flip over to Luke 16. Here you get the story of Lazarus and the rich man. So you've got another story. Of a rich man and a poor man. Same kinds of things going on in the blessing and the woes. The rich man, we see, walks by Lazarus, who is covered with sores and desired to be fed from the scraps of the rich man's table. So they both die, both the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus and the rich man. And then we get this, verse 22. Look at verse 22. The poor man, Lazarus, is carried by angels to Abraham's side. In other words, he goes to heaven. While the rich man died, And went to Hades and was in torment. So in life, the poor man suffered, but in the long run found pleasure after death. And in life, the rich man was in pleasure, but after life, he was in pain. We think about the story of the rich young ruler, same thing. There's so many more of those. And so when you match all of this with what we just learned about Jesus coming as a physician to care for the sick. We see that Luke will not let us shake free from the clear and natural reading of poor and wealthy. Both of them, poor and wealthy, have implications on our lives. Not only economically, but also socially, emotionally, and most of all, spiritually. And so what's going on? What's the big idea here with these blessings and these woes? Well, on the one hand, again, just to kind of summarize... They're not absolutes. In other words, you can't just go make yourself poor, fast, and start weeping, and then you're in the blessing. You can't perform it. No, though you can't perform the blessing. Because if that's the case, well, then there's no need for grace and mercy. Right? In uh, matter of fact, I'm sure some of you, I, I, some of the most poorest people I've met are some of the proudest people I've met. But then also on the other side, this, the same is true on the on the woes. Just because you're rich, full, and laughing, doesn't mean that you're automatically and always cursed. Likewise, some of the godliest people I know are some of the wealthiest people I know. So we learned so far that these are not absolutes. However, we also have learned that the materialization of poverty and wealth, crying and laughing, being rejected and being overwhelmingly accepted have massive implications upon our lives. And so while these verses are not absolutes, their natural reading does mean to teach us about the implications of material poverty and wealth and what they can do to us. Jesus wants us to see the virtue behind things the world doesn't value. Things like poverty, hunger, weeping, and persecution. And he wants us to be warned by the dangers of wealth, fullness, laughter, and acceptance. In other words, guys, Jesus, as we look at his preaching now, he teaches an upside-down kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is often upside-down from the values of the world. And so while Jesus doesn't command us to go out and seek poverty, hunger, weeping, and persecution... He does want us to see that when these things come. They can serve to orient us into the blessing of Christ. Because there's something about those difficulties. There's something about poverty. There's something about uh, weeping. There's something about hunger. There's something about persecution that levels our pride. And that it causes us. To look to Jesus for strength. That understands that we're weak and needy vessels and God has to be the one to forgive us and orient us towards the good life. There's something about those things that does that. And also, on the other side, wealth, fullness, laughter, and being widely accepted, it does the opposite. Using the language of the parable of the sower, they choke out the fruit of the gospel seed because our hopes get oriented towards the pleasures of this world. Like, I, 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 I repent. And that's true of me. Instead of being oriented by the son of man, we listen to the false prophets that orient us to this world. And therefore, we then can get hardened to a life of faith in Christ, which is a hard road to walk. That's the intention of Jesus's blessings and woes. Blessed, that is, if I could just summarize it all up. Blessed are those that know they are in need and look to Jesus. As opposed to cursed are those that think they're good and they have everything they want and don't look to him except to maybe help them when they're having a rough day. That's basically the summation of what's going on here. Because again, remember the whole Luke 5.32. What does Jesus say? Think about Christmas. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's what's going on. So while we do, uh, and, and let me also kind of move from there. Let me move out of the text and kind of take a look around in the world we live in. We don't need studies. We don't need studies to confirm the word of God. However, it is good when we find that they do, right? It helps us. In the West, the most irreligious people are often found in urban settings, just like this one. The places where there is the most education, wealth, and power. In fact, as America has increased in wealth and power, we've strangely seen this putting off of religiosity. It's no coincidence. It's exactly what Jesus says. In fact, a recent Pew research analysis has revealed that the highest concentration of non-believers are most often white men that are highly educated and wealthy. Which are all the same markers for power and privilege. I read one atheist website this week that said Richard Dawkins is basically our mascot. You combine that with what I've found to be the most active spiritually, the most people that understand, even in my, as it relates to Christianity, following Jesus. More often than not, this is not based on a study. This is my own personal experience, which is, which is definitely flawed. But I've found to be more often than not, the people that are most active spiritually are the less educated, poor female minorities. The exact opposite of wealth and power and privilege historically in our nation. And so, in fact, while the New York Times and other Western media outlets report on the eradication of Christianity from society, the truth is, friends, the gospel is taking storm on the continent of Africa and in the global south in general. China is predicted to have more Christians than America in the next 10 years. And, w- and when I say that, it's not coming from the bourgeoisie at the top. It's more blue-collar workers that are tired of the elites. And they're just common people that understand they have needs and they look, they're look they looking to Jesus. Uh, We saw that right in our own own congregation. We saw a man from China in our midst just recently get saved, fleeing China for those very reasons, and he trusted in Jesus. And it was that difficulty, it was that pain that caused him to reach out to a church, hear the gospel, and believe. The same is true, friends, that's happening in Iran, in India, in Pakistan. I mean, the church, one might argue that we are in the midst of a major historic revival. But you say it doesn't feel that way right here where there's wealth and power and privilege. So where there is economic and social wealth, there is also we're finding religious poverty because people get full and are oriented towards this world. But where there is economic and social poverty, there's also we're finding religious wealth because they sense their need. They know they're sick and they look for a savior. Exactly what Jesus described. Or maybe we can describe the point of these blessings and woes with another passage from Scripture. You'll see it behind me, 2 Timothy 4, 9-14. Just notice the interaction of the blessing and the woes. This is Paul writing in a prison, by the way, for the gospel. And here's what he says to his young disciple Timothy. I mean, you can almost hear his tears. He says, do your best to come to me soon. Here comes one group of the woes for Demas. By the way, he used to be a guy that traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus, to Dalmatia, Luke. By the way, that's the same. Luke as the one that wrote this. Luke alone is with me. In other words, Paul is alone. He's not well liked by a lot of folks. Get Mark and bring him with you. for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak. Here's a poor guy. Doesn't even have a coat with him. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the Bible, the parchments. He just wants a coat and a Bible and people to come around him because he didn't have these things. He's poor. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. There it is. He's not well liked by others. May it not be charged against him. It's loving enemies. We'll see that next January. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth sorry but I, but the I missed bird. may it not be charged again but the lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the gentiles might hear it so i was rescued from the lion's mouth the lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom to him be the glory forever and ever amen in other words for mine is the kingdom of god and so the question is as we kind of come out of these two blessing and woes Are you ordered by Christ or are you ordered by the world? Are you ordered by Jesus, submitting to him even when it's hard, especially when it's hard, or are you oriented by the false prophets, the liars? Are you a disciple of Jesus or a disciple of the world? Are you hungry for holiness or are you full and wanting more of the world and its favor and its blessings? Well friend, if you are repenting of your sin, trusting in Christ alone, ordered by his life and lordship, finding yourself in need economically, but also socially, maybe even theologically, like you just are confused and you're looking to Jesus. Are you poor in that sense? Well, Jesus says to you, blessed are you. Blessed are you. Happy are you. Yours is present tense active is the kingdom of God. In other words, you get to enjoy the benefits of that coming kingdom now, even though the world casts you aside. You can have the benefits of the kingdom now. You can know the joy of being loved, of being accepted, of having a hope in heaven. Secondly, are any of you disciples of Jesus hungry? That is literally hungry. That is, any of you struggle to have the basic needs of life, food, water, shelter? Do any of you look to Jesus and want something more like you're hungry in that sense? Jesus says blessing to you while you suffer. Now, you will be satisfied when he returns or when you die and meet him face to face. Are any of you in Christ weeping? Think about this a lot at Christmas time. There's some of you. Christmas is hard for you and you weep. Weeping over the loss of a loved one. Weeping over your own health. Weeping over the absence of something good that you desire. Weeping over something that you or a loved one experienced. Weeping over the brokenness of our world. Weeping over the lostness of humanity. Jesus says to you, blessed are you that weep now for the day is coming when you will laugh. That day is coming. A day is coming when your tears will be wiped away and you will have joy eternal. And for those disciples that have or will be persecuted, as Jesus says here, on account of him, on account of the Son of Man, that is because you love Jesus more than you love the world, therefore you are willing to speak up for Christ or the ways of Christ. And as a result, you have been or will be hated by former friends or coworkers, excluded from a job, excluded maybe from your family table because of your love for Christ. You've been reviled. That is, people have said harsh things to you about what you believe about the gospel and the world that testifies to that gospel. If you've been spurned by evil in some ways, that is to say, for you that stood for the way, the truth and the life of Christ, and as a result, you were cast out. As old-fashioned, as traditional, as judgmental, as irrelevant or worse, you were evil, sparked as evil, cruel, mean, hateful, bigoted, whatever. Jesus says to you, Rejoice. Rejoice. Leap for joy. For behold, you will enjoy the reward of his everlasting love in heaven. For from old people have been doing this to the Lord's prophets. You're in line with a bunch of God's people. God loves you and he's in favor. And so for any and all of you that are disciples of Christ, hoping in him, treasuring him, yet also are experiencing a lack of material or emotional support, or you are experiencing pain and difficulty, or you are experiencing persecution on account of following Jesus, take heart, beloved. Take heart, for Jesus entered into all of these sufferings and more. He had no home. He had no spouse. He had no children of his home. He knew hunger and thirst. He knew abandonment and loneliness. He knew what it was to lose a loved one and weep. He knew what it was to lament over a city that lost its way. He knew what it was to be made fun of, to be excluded, to be spurned as evil. He knew what it was to be beaten, to be murdered. For what he believed to be was true, was right, was good. Take heart, beloved. He knew all of these things. And unlike us, he knew those things and did not also know sin. And so because of that, this is the hope of the gospel. He was crucified on behalf of sinners. That's how he rescues them. Because he endured all of these things and yet never sinned. That's amazing. People like, it's amazing that a man could rape from the dead. No, it's amazing that he can endure all that and never sin. And he went to the cross and he took all of that same stuff. So when Jesus says, blessed are those that are in the kingdom, you know, all of these things. These things that he think about this. He's on the sermon on the plane. And he's saying all these things. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. And, the whole, and he knows the whole time he's going to the cross and he's going to actually stand for that. That's why we have this cross in front of us to remind us that we are oriented by the son. He's the one that gives us life. He's the one that gives us meaning. He's the one that gives us fulfillment because he is our end. He's our goal. And he triumphed over sin and death in the cross. In the burial and in the resurrection three days later. And in his ascension, we await for his return. And when he comes back, it's going to be awesome. Party time, right? Looking at Jesus face to face. All of our tears wiped away. All the, all the bad tears wiped away. Plenty of tears of joy. Leaping for joy. Life. Peace. No more woes. No more failures. No more sin. But in his presence. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Such good news. So take heart, beloved. You are blessed because, as Chris reminded us a couple weeks ago, Jesus, who was rich, yet for your sake became poor. So that by his poverty, you might become, say it with me, rich. Yeah. That's how we're blessed in Jesus. But also, while we are... We that are in Christ take heart in Jesus and in this gospel. We also need to heed the warnings of the woes that are here. So for those of you that are also, for those of us that are in Christ, we need to heed these warnings. But secondly, if you're not in Christ, not trusting Christ, not repenting and believing on Christ for salvation, if that's you, you need to listen to these verses. These are hard sentences, but they're good because they orient us to the truth. And the truth is wealth and fullness cloud our sight of reality. They can shield us from the truth. And they will tempt us to follow lies, false prophets. Wealth and fullness can make us so full of good things that we keep ourselves from the great things, right? This is what C.S. Lewis says. We fool about with mud pies when a holiday at the sea is offered to us. And so Jesus says, woe to the rich. They've received their consolation. That means comfort. They've received their comfort if you're rich, hoping in those things. So because you found comfort in what money can buy, you won't taste what money can't buy. Forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation, heaven, a home. Woe to those that are full now, for you will be hungry. Which is to say you may have found your fill here, but you will be left wanting on the day of judgment. Woe to you that laugh. That is, woe to those that take pleasure from all that this world has to offer while seeking little to no laughter or joy in Christ. Upon your death or upon the return of Christ, you will mourn and weep. Woe to you who live for the favor of everyone speaking well of you. This is our cultural moment. This was the lot of the false prophets. They found favor with man, but came to rest in the wrath of God. Friend, these are not my words. These are the words of Jesus, the Son of God. So if you go home today saying I went to a Christmas sermon and you know he just spouted off judgment, just, it was the next passage, and it's Jesus's words. <laughs> you you got I'm, I'm serious. I mean we kind of laugh, but you need to wrestle with that. It's right there. Jesus is the one that is full of love and truth, and these words here, friend, are to serve you. And so as I've already said, most everyone in this room is in danger. All of us in this room are in danger of falling under the condemnation of these words because we live We live amidst so much fullness. We live in a society that doesn't really know need. We live in a place and time that is trying to disciple us to have a hunger for this world and all it can offer, while at the same time convincing you to keep your distance from the true and biblical Jesus and Jesus' people, the church. And so let me speak to my skeptical friends that are here in the room. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for coming, spending your time this Sunday morning to come with us. Friend, might I ask of you, is it possible that your skepticism to the Christian faith is not because you've studied it and found it wanting, but it's because you're full of this world? Be attentive, friends, to the ways that fullness and acceptance are clouding your judgment of the truth. 21st century America may be losing its religion, but it's not because the gospel, again, has been tried and found wanting. It's not because it's been studied and found lacking. It's because people are increasingly intoxicated by false prophets who convert people, who convert people into believing that they're not sick. And if they are, they can found an antidote in this world. And Jesus says, if that's you, I didn't come for you. I came for the people that know they're sick. That know they're sinners and they can't do anything. No amount of Bible reading or Lord's Supper taking can save them. He came for them. He came for weak people like those disciples. That are willing to lose it all that they might gain Christ and be found in him. In other words, if you don't think that you're sick, you won't reach for the physician. If you don't think your deepest problem is sin against God, then you won't see your need for Christ. And so be aware, friend. That your unbelief has very possibly been taught to you by the world to find fullness here, and it never will. Christians are unique people for a lot of reasons, but for one reason. We look at the world and all the suffering, and we understand why it's there. And we're, there's, well, we understand why it's there, big picture. We don't understand why things happen, but we know a day's coming when it'll be made right. But for the rest of us, let these passages remind us of the words of the Apostle Paul who said that godliness with contentment is great gain. Now it's going to sound like, I'm just going to, one page here, it's going to sound like this is Nathan talking. I I basically formed this, and all I'm doing is reading 1 Timothy 5. Here's our counsel. What do we do? Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But for those that desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, into into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I've seen it happen as a pastor in my 10 years. I've watched that happen. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, Restoration Church, flee these things. That is to say, flee contentment in the world. Pursue, Paul would say, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Fight it. We have to fight. You can't just coast in the world. You'll swim down the stream. It'll take you down. We've got to fight against the stream of the world and get upstream by the grace of God. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. If you remember, that means you were made, a, a, you were recognized, the witnesses this was this church. I charge you, Paul says, in the presence of God who gives life to all things to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus, which he will display at the proper time. Love that Paul's anticipating that. Is he ever going to come? Which he will display at the proper time. Live for that day. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in in inapproachable light to him, be honor and eternal dominion. Be warned, beloved, be warned of fullness and pursuing it in the here and now and do whatever is necessary to be satisfied in Christ today and forever. Last little bit and I'm done. First Corinthians, first Timothy six. He says this, this is like some of you are sitting here going, I have a lot of money. What do I do? I'm going to leave you with this. Paul says there, as for the rich in this present age, that's you, that's most people in this room. Charge them not to be haughty. That is to say, don't be arrogant. This is so important. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. You may have money today and it'll be gone tomorrow. But on God, set it on the certainty of God. Love what Paul does here, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, the rich people, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. I thank God that you guys are so often these people. Thus, he says, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's Paul's counsel to most of us in the room. That are rich. How to live in light of it. I'm going to close with this. One of my favorite stories at Christmas time. is one of my favorite movies in the history of the world. is the story of George Bailey. If you've not seen It's a Wonderful Life. Do it tonight. It is a great story for a thousand reasons. But it reminds us of this truth. George Bailey wanted to get out and live for the world. Didn't he? He wanted to get out from that sleepy town of Bedford Falls. Get away from it all. That's where the life is. He gets the big, and he can't ever seem to get away. But what does he do instead? He does exactly what 1 Timothy 6 says. He doesn't put his hope in the uncertainty of riches, but he gives his money away for the good of others. And other people thrive, and he has to live in this cranky old house, and all this stuff bad. Mr. Potter is living for this world, right? And he gets to the end. He's going to commit suicide, and then he says, I just wish I'd never been born at all. And he then gets this great gift to see the world, see what that little tiny town, Could be like if he'd never been born. And what did he find? He found the ways that his life was rich, was wealthy, was beautiful, was good, was satisfying. It was hard, not like his other buddies in plastics making a bunch of money. But he had a wealthy life. He had a wonderful life. Even though in the eyes of the world, it wasn't much in a tiny little sleepy town at Bedford Falls. Here's the thing, guys. Most of us will never be those great guys in the world, great guys and gals and great movers and shakers. All of us can be George Bailey. All of us can make a significant impact on a tiny community for the glory of Christ and the good of others. As we give ourselves to Jesus and helping each other follow towards heaven, putting our certainty in him in the kingdom of heaven. that's breaking in. So give yourself to him. Be blessed, which is to say be poor. Be hungry, be weeping, be persecuted for the sake of Christ. And don't be giving yourself over to those woes of finding fullness here. And you will live a wonderful life for the sake of Christ, the good of others and the glory of God. May it be for us. Let's pray and ask him to help us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were the blessed man that you were all of those blessings before any of us were. We thank you that you did not give into those woes. And because of that, we have hope in you, your death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and soon return. So may we be ordered to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one that was poor, but for our sake was rich. Yep. For our sake became poor that we in him might become rich. May we live for the wealth of Jesus for you and for others, May we live wonderful lives. But we steer clear of the lies of this world and orient ourselves to the truth of Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our wealth. In whose name we pray. Amen.